here to hear about marketing. And I think you came to a great place to learn about marketing because a farmer has to be a built-in marketer, in my opinion. So you've got a whole panel of experts here, experts in their field. And um, so I think, I think this should be a, a time of learning and sharing ideas of how the Lord has blessed each of these farmers on their journey to making what God has given them available to other people. And that's really, really what our purpose is, whether we're as Christians in our Christian walk or in our vocation of farming. We have to find ways in this competitive age of sharing what we have well with the people in our communities that we're trying to reach. And I think it would be... um, the best thing that we could do right now is if we would ask the Lord's blessing on this time of discussion. And so I would like to ask David Obermiller if he would have the blessing. Father in heaven, um, we sit up here, but we sit here because you've shared with us. Um, And everything that we've learned, as David said, we have because you've given it us. So uh, Lord, is our privilege to be able to share. I pray that you would help us to share that which is useful and that which glorifies you and moves everybody forward in a, in a direction that uh, takes your cause further in the earth. Amen. So what I thought that, um, and by the way, I'm not Byron Smith. My name is Janice Smith. My husband is behind me. And at the last minute, we did a little swap. Um, so I'm sorry that it's me and not. She's better looking and better at this anyway. No, no, no. It's, um, anyways, this, this is what it is. So what I thought is that I think Many of you already know many of these farmers, but you might not know all of them, and you might not know some of the things that they have to share. So I thought that we could start at the end, and we'll start with John. And each farmer, I would like you each to give a very um, brief description of your farm, what it is that you're growing, and what types of markets that you service, and how many years you've been doing this. And that'll kind of give us an overview to start with. Okay, my name is John Dysinger, and we are from Bountiful Blessings Farm in Middle Tennessee. Um, I'm not going to remember all those questions, but we've been doing it. We just planted our 18th strawberry crop. we, we have a small operation. I, I figure it's about three and a half acres under cultivation, some which is in cover crops at any one time. Um, but we do go year-round, and we have a, a summer CSA and a winter CSA. That's our, our main market. And then we also do farmer's markets in the summer, and a little bit of wholesale to a, a food hub in Nashville. Um, did that cover mm-hmm. it all? Now, you said strawberries. I assume you might grow more than strawberries. Though. Oh, yes. I'm, we, well, we actually started just with strawberries and soon learned that that's not a good idea. So we now do pretty much, I mean, small fruits and, and all the vegetables that most people know how to pronounce and just Someday while don't. someone is thinking of the question, why did you decide strawberries weren't a good idea in one second? Well, strawberries are a good idea, but, but when you just do strawberries, exactly. we had, a, we had a, 
a disastrous spring in 2003 where it rained basically for a month and that was that's what I was hoping you were saying the direction of our farm yeah that you wanted to diversify excellent thank you John I'm uh, Jim Tiffany from Paradise Acres Farm up in Kingsley Michigan and uh, sitting next to these folks I'm a little hesitant to uh, call myself a farmer uh, we, we raise microgreens. Uh, we're small scale, if you could uh, call us a farm. Our growing area is, uh, our whole production area is 8 by 20 in our, in our garage. So we're, we're very small, but um, it's something that uh, we're producing that's very, very health promoting. We sell to restaurants and grocery stores in our local area. And um, it's, it's uh, something that's very good for someone. It, it's been something that my wife could do while taking care of my mother, uh, who was needing a lot of care. And um, so anyway, that's... But I need to interject. Show. In an 8 by 20 space, you can grow a lot of stuff when it's microgreens. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's something to think about. My name's John Quaid. Uh, we have North Columbia Farms in Kettle Falls, Washington. We grow <clears throat> strawberries and blueberries, raspberries, blackberries. Ooh, I want to um, come there. And some other things. And um, strawberries have been good to us. Okay. We've been doing it about four or five years. Blueberries. I still consider myself pretty much a neophyte. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think but, we uh, all are. Yeah. So... Uh, Space. How how oh, many space. acres? Um, or? We have a quarter acre of strawberries. Okay. And three quarters of an acre of blueberries, and then some of the other stuff. I don't know exactly. Probably total about two, but we're kind of expanding. Fruit seems to be really popular. Yes. Now John grows year round. Jim, you're year round with your microgreens. Is yours must be more seasonal? I assume. Yeah, it's 22 degrees there right now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we. Okay. We don't grow in the winter. So we're seeing a diversity here of, of the growing seasons. And I'm Whitmar McConnell. Uh, we're now from uh, near Lexington, Kentucky. I've been in ten, uh, Colorado for the last 20 years, 20, uh, 20 plus years. Um, we grow about everything you can imagine as far as vegetables go, like John said, that people can pronounce and maybe a few that they, they can't pronounce. We grow small fruits, uh, the berries and um, we do it both outdoors and in different levels of, of climate control, so high tunnels, floating row cover, controlled greenhouses. We've had as much as 45,000 square feet. Um, we cut that in, we're cutting that in half. I'm actually, we've grown on more acreage in the past, but I've actually been trending down because I think a smaller area, better managed, mm-hmm. is, a, is a, a lot better way to go. And yeah. My objective is to encourage a lot more people to do the same thing, to have more people out there. Um, so right now, we're still trying to figure out how much acreage, but we're thinking we're going to be five acres or less uh, with what we're going to be growing. It's probably going to be more like half of that. I grow everything intensively on a highly managed system that's high fertility, and uh, so we can get a lot out of a, a little bit of space. and Different places... Uh, 
certain things appeal to you. I discovered after we moved to Kentucky that potatoes, which is a commodity crop, might actually be a pretty profitable crop. So we try to feel out what the, you know, what the need is and what the interest yes. is actually in the marketplace. Um, the biggest thing, and we, we, we prefer to sell directly to the customer, so off-farm or at farmer's markets. Um, it's, a, it's an evangelistic effort for us, not just a, a, a means of a livelihood. And so we've, we've continued to, to do it that way. I can't tell you exactly what we'll be growing and all of that now because we just moved here. I've been working on infrastructure for the last two years, and, and so we're not quite up and going again yet. Um, Where is here? Uh, it's, it's, uh, we're about an hour east of Lexington, Lexington Kentucky. Kentucky, okay. Now. And where are some of the other places where you have farmed? Uh, primarily it was in Colorado. Okay. Uh, we did, I have worked some in Tennessee, and, mm -hmm. uh, but it was primarily in Colorado. And if you've lived in Colorado before, you know that uh, it's got a little bit different weather. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. place. But growing crops there, some types of crops can be a challenge. Um, we learned, I learned how to grow blueberries in an in a soil that you're not supposed to be able to grow them in, but in that process, it discovered that if you have the right model, you can grow anything. Mm -hmm. um, if, the, if the climate will allow you, you can grow anything anywhere. Okay. So. Now, you mentioned, um, John, you mentioned a CSA, and I'm assuming everybody knows what a CSA is, Community Supported Agriculture, and that's when you're selling direct to the customer. Whitmar, you also mentioned direct. Are you doing it via a CSA or how? We're not doing it as, as a CSA at this point. It's just, you know, market stand kind of okay. thing and, and uh, farmer's markets. We've, it's always worked out that people wind up coming to us. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we really want them to do because then we have the opportunity to, to introduce them to things beyond just good food. Absolutely. So that, that's our goal. But, yeah, it's primarily uh, we've been requested to do a CSA mm -hmm. several times, but we haven't jumped in on that one yet. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Hi, my name's Darren Greenfield. I'm the farm manager at Weimar Institute. I've been there four years. We're certified organic. Uh, we have 22 acres certified, but we grow in less than half of that. We have a, uh, well, that's loud. <laughs> we have a diversity of crops. Our main crop is sweet potato. That's probably about 40% of our income. Um, and then we have uh, summer crops, the main... We do have about 7,000 square feet of high tunnel, so we do grow some things through the winter. But, um, yeah, I've been doing it for four years and learning and, and seeing some successes and some failures, and, but the Lord's been blessing through it all. Repeat, how many acres was it of sweet potatoes? It's been different every year. We started out with about five. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a lot of work. And then we probably went down a little bit, then went up to five again. And this year we went down to three. So various factors involved in that. That, of course, is seasonal. But your high tunnels and stuff, they have gone through the winter, have they not? Correct. Yes, yeah, okay. so year-round. And then um, your, what is your primary market? We wholesale. Okay. Primarily, we tried CSA and it failed. Okay. And so we continue with the wholesale, and um, that seems to be working best for us. Okay. And one thing I forgot to check with everybody I know, John, your farm is certified organic, and I know you are too. Um, certified or not? No. How about you, Whitmar? No. Okay. 
And then, Darren, you said you were. Okay, Luke, right? Uh, yes, my name is Luke Fisher. Um, my business is called Fisher's Produce. I grew up on a family farm, uh, conventional uh, Midwest corn, wheat, soybeans, beef cattle, um, hay. And I started my own business about seven years ago and um, am farming a couple acres of that, of, of the land that I grew up on. Um, I have about two acres of certified organic mixed vegetable production, high tunnel, caterpillar tunnel, um, and then I also have six acres of conventional asparagus. Um, my market is roughly a third CSA, a third farmer's market, a third wholesale. And I know you go to Africa for part of the year. Yeah. So. so I typically am in Africa this time of the year. Uh, we just had a baby last week, so we're here in the States. Um, my usual season is spring and summer, market, fall and winter in Congo. Okay, so you're, you're a seasonal. Seasonal. Firm. And you, you are partly certified organic, but um, you have the asparagus. My asparagus is not, is not certified organic, okay. um, but my other several acres of uh, mixed vegetable production is. Okay, awesome. David. <clears throat> there we go. My name is David. I'm the farm manager at Fresno Adventist Academy. The farm's name is Harvest Fields Organic Farm, and so we are certified organic. Uh, we have 13 acres, which is um, an acre of table grapes, four acres of citrus, and the rest of it just mixed vegetables and small fruit with uh, two greenhouses and two high tunnels, small greenhouses, small high tunnels. What were the other things? Um, you, I missed it because I saw a commotion. Um, you are certified organic, We are correct? certified organic. Yes, and then... Um, your market type. Oh, the uh, market. Wholesale, yes. direct. So we have a CSA, which right now is at 70 members. And we hope to push that to probably about 150. And then the rest of what we do will be wholesale. Uh, we do some local stores right now, four local stores and a couple of restaurants. Uh, may do a farmer's market once we have more diversity in supply. And did you tell, I, I'm sorry, I <clears throat> okay. got distracted. Did you tell exactly how, your farm is very new. Two years old, yeah. And you started it literally from, like, you went to the school and there was nothing there, correct? It was pretty close to nothing. They had, uh, as the principal showed this morning, they had uh, an old dairy barn. Mm -hmm. The uh, school property used to be a dairy farm uh, when they bought it in the 60s. <clears throat> and so it went through renovations. It was auto shop and technology, welding, whatever they taught the kids there. And then so that's what we had as a facility. It was kind of not kept. Mm -hmm. um, so aside from that building and a few pieces of equipment, like a disc they had run without bearings in it, um, which is a really great idea, right? But aside from that, they really didn't have anything. So we started from... Nothing. Well, we did have this, the citrus. So That's true. That had been there for, parts of it had been there for 20 years or something. Mm -hmm. So we at least had that to start with. Okay. And then the other thing I just wanted to um, make mention is I imagine that a lot of our farms are more in the country, but your farm... Is pretty city. Uh, but that's kind of... 40 acres on the school campus that is, was at one point in the country, it was a dairy farm. 
but it was swallowed by the uh, city of Fresno and was unfortunately not swallowed by the uh, upper echelon of the residents of Fresno. Mm -hmm. So we're surrounded by low income, um, very ethnic uh, communities that have little access to fresh food, but got lots of liquor and fast food. Ministry opportunity. Yes, indeed. Okay, Judy and Brad. Hi, I'm Judy Johnson. This is my husband, Brad, and we together farm Woolly Farms out in California. And I'll let Brad give you more details. We live in Gridley, California, and um, I've been farming there. Um, well, my dad farm started in the 50s, and then I, I started my part of the farming in uh, 1976 and have been progressively doing stuff on the farm since then. Um, maybe hard to know the details of going from, we st- I started out with uh, fresh market vegetables and then did some uh, kiwi, kind of came in and we were doing kiwi nursery and, and kiwi fruit, and marketing those to some of the markets in San Francisco and then um, we dropped out of the vegetable business for a while. I stayed in prunes. My dad was in the prune business, so I took over some of my dad's property farming prunes. Sugar plums now, they, they, they sell better if they're called plums, so they're calling plums. So we, we grow those, and, um, and then uh, we kind of got back into the vegetable business uh, since we've been married, and we've been doing fresh market vegetables and uh, walnuts. What define fresh market vegetables. Uh, so we do a lot of heirloom tomatoes, Roma tomatoes. We do um, zucchini squash, uh, cucumbers, uh, eggplant. We've done a lot of globe eggplant and, and Japanese eggplant, um, basil, melons, a lot of watermelon, mini watermelons, um, ambrosia melons, okra, I don't know, di- um, peppers. Um, other stuff that we kind of decide wasn't that great, like green beans and corn and stuff like that. We decided, well, that wasn't working out. So right now we we do all wholesale. We've been we've done um, we did some fruit stand stuff. We've done some farmer markets when our kids were little, and um, now and then CSA. We did a little that for a little while. My rent, wife ran that, and now now we're all wholesale. So we basically pick, pack, ship right from our farm and ship to uh, basically the west coast of California. We, a lot of stuff goes to the Bay Area, then we ship some stuff down to, L, down to L.A. and stuff to um, Portland and Washington, some of the markets up there. And Did you say how many acres you do? Uh, we farm, Judy and I farm about 60 acres, all organic, and then I farm another 80 acres with my brother, which is uh, peaches and prunes. And then we've done alfalfa, and we do seasonal grains like safflower and wheat and hay and stuff like that when we have open ground, some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and you're all certified organic? Certified organic on, on our property, yeah. And, yeah. As of, oops. <laughs> and as of this summer, we are USDA certified also. Yeah. So we're seeing a range of sizes of farms, which is kind of neat. Um, and then Sunny Zona Family Farms. I think Amy should describe it. Okay, so Amy is going, she's our youngest daughter, and so she's going to give the description, I guess. So we are from Sunny Zona Family Farms, and what were your questions? Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, she joined us later. Okay, so you need to give a brief description of the farm, um, how many years, um, 
the types of products that we grow and our types of market? So um, we are an organic farm, and we do kind of like a CSA program. We call it our flavor crate. We just changed the name this year. Um, so everything is all orderable online, so people can choose exactly what's in their box. Um, so that's kind of the farm we do. We also sell wholesale and retail as well. And we have, well, we have like 320 acres, but we only farm on about two and a half currently. And I think it's three and a half. <laughs> There's a debate. Anyways, we have, we farm on a couple of acres. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And um, we do um, just a huge variety of, of crops, everything from kale to tomatoes to cucumbers to um, peppers, eggplant, a wide range of stuff. And um, we've been around for 20, no, 19 years. I think ever since I was five, we started, so yeah. And are we year-round or season? Oh, yeah, we are year-round. We have greenhouses, so we grow year-round. And greenhouses and, and high, high tunnels. tunnels and outside. And we do, when we do like um, crops like sweet potatoes or watermelon, then that's more acres. But the year-round stuff is the the lower number of acres. Oh, Arizona, sorry. Um, southeast corner of Arizona. So one thing that I think um, your farm and our farm is showing very clearly is that farming is great for families, but I happen to know, because I know other people on this group, I happen to know that most of the people on this group, their, their wives are standing behind these men and um, helping them in every way imaginable to make the farm work. Um, I would like to um, have you now, well, first off, does anybody have a question specifically for anybody? So let's let, if anybody has a specific question for one of these farmers. Wow, you guys answered everything. I mean, you've spoken ahead of everybody. Okay, so next question, and this, this needs to be like your, your one-sentence answer. As your at, at your farm, um, if you had one word or one sentence that you would use to say gives you that marketing advantage for the um, that gives you a marketing advantage, can you tell these people what 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 sets you apart? Why why would I want to buy your microgreens, Jim? Why would I want to come to John Quaid's farm for his berries or whatever it is? What what have you figured out has set you apart? And just we don't have to go in exact order because I know not everybody will have their their answer right up front, but somebody needs to give me an answer and then we'll get everybody. Yes. John. Uh, two words. Fresh strawberries. That's Excellent. all you have to do. And do, by the way, do you do you pick or do you... We try not to do you pick because we make a lot more money if we pick. Okay. And we only have a quarter acre of strawberries mm -hmm. right now. So are you doing it all the picking yourself or do you have people you employ? Just us. My wife, uh, her parents live not too far away. Sometimes okay. they come and help us at peak mm -hmm. times. But my wife is a phenomenal picker and she'll be picking till, and she loves it, mm -hmm. you know, 10.30 at night. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I call strawberries a kind of crisis crop because it seems like you're always in a crisis. Either get them picked or get them sold. And uh, so we're always glad when it's over, but, I mean, it's what makes our farm. Yeah. 
the, the fresh flavor. Yeah, we try to they know convert, it's so local. convert all the customers, you know, from maybe a $10 strawberry sale. Or we got our flat buyers, too. Mm-hmm. But we try to sell them a head of lettuce and tomatoes and cabbage. And oh, so you are growing more than just the yes. berries. Because I didn't catch that the but first But people time don't around. pull over because they see a big sign that says cabbage. Yeah. But if they uh, see strawberries, they do a U-turn. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. There's your marketing tactic. Especially if they have eaten um, fresh-picked, farm-grown, fresh-market strawberries. They're different than the kinds that are sold at the grocery store. Absolutely. I would say in a nutshell, consistent high quality. One thing we learned early on was that our competition did not have a consistent product. And also the fact that you deliver it directly to the chef, right? Oh, absolutely. So you're providing him that service. Okay. Someone else? So we are the only certified organic farm in the city limits of Fresno that is also on a school campus. Um, Best I understand. That's shocking in California, but... But that's a great story to get to your customers because when those people... Everybody resonates to young people and knowing that young people need to learn these skills. So that's a great set-you-apart story. I don't know if I've got one word, but I'd say personal relationships. Mm. Um, Even though we aren't... We're not directly involved with our customer. So we are, but we're directly involved with our buyers. Mm -hmm. So we involve ourselves with um, either we go see our buyers every year, visit them at their office, uh, or we invite them to come to the farm, do a farm tour. We have wholesale market buyers or groups that come to our place, um, or we go to them. And then my wife, you maybe speak to yours, she keeps a a great relationship with our, we have a, a broker that brokers a lot of our stuff. And I do, and so she keeps in touch with him on a daily basis practically, and they they have a good relationship. And he is probably the best in the business, um, in my opinion. But um, then my my own personal sales, stuff we sell like, whether it be prunes or walnuts or or kind of a mix of sales there, but I keep in touch with my customers on a personal basis, on an annual basis at least, or by phone at some point. And that touch contact is so important. I can tell you from my experience, which would be similar to yours, um, one of our wholesale customers that I hadn't talked to him for probably probably four years because we had kind of changed and we weren't selling to them anymore. And then I called him here a few months ago out of the clear blue, and I just said, hey, Matt, this is Janice. And he said, Janice! You know, he said, I knew your voice the minute I heard you because we had, we had had for so many years that that daily phone call. You know, hadn't met him in person that many times, but, you know, once or twice a year, meet him in person. So that, that touch contact is so important, so important. Yeah, I, I just want to echo that because that's exactly what I was thinking about. You know, the customers can tell if you are marketing to them or if you are connecting with them. And... Um, so we really try to make personal relationships our, our selling point, you know, what sets us apart. The family factor, you know, we send our kids to market because, as I think you said, 
you know, people are more likely to buy from a young person than from just an old farmer. Um, so it's, it's the family aspect, and then we really try to genuinely, you know, the days we go to market, we pray, and we say, Lord, give us divine appointments today. And then when we come back from market, we debrief and share. So what, who did you talk to? What, um, you know, what divine appointments did you have? And I think that comes through to the customer. I mean, I know it does. Absolutely. I think we're in a world where people are looking for things authentic. And whether you're selling wholesale or whether you're selling direct to consumer, that authentic um, Christian value will shine through and needs to shine through. We, uh, our location is very, uh, in a competitive area, there's probably 40-odd small farms that are competing to get into a small number of stores. And uh, two things that I've found that have given us an edge on everybody else, one of them is the soil management, if anyone's taking the soil class from Whitmer, um, the Lord in his providence had someone mentor me into uh, proper soil management right from the beginning, and then also using C90, the ocean minerals, um, it adds something to the produce that actually makes it uh, tastier and uh, gives it a longer shelf life, um, and it has healing power. And without going into a lot of details, I had seborrheic dermatitis, and when I started eating the food that was... Um, produced with C90, it cured me. I, I haven't had issues with it since. And that the doctors say it's incurable. So, um, so explaining to the customers about that, and then one of the customers um, this, in their store, they put in a new refrigeration unit for display, and it malfunctioned and froze everything. And the next time I went in there, he said, you know, we lost $5,000 worth of produce. But he said, none of yours froze. He said, it must be all the minerals that you're putting into, into the ground. And so after that, it was like, um, what else do you have? What, what else can you sell us? So their door is wide open. And now when he puts our, our farm name on the produce, you know, on, on the display, he said the stuff just flies out. And um, so starting from the foundation, the soil has been the best marketing strategy for us. And secondly... Um, as far as crops go, uh, sweet basil has been the uh, thing that is a big door opener to stores that we have not been in before. We, um, just to give you an idea, we grow just down one high tunnel that's 100 feet long, two foot on either edge, two, double row of, of basil, and um, in one season about $5,000 worth from, uh, from those two rows. Uh, we cut it every week. It's very consistent. And um, people love it because it smells fresh. We put it in a, in a Rubbermaid tub with uh, chicken mesh uh, holding the bunches up about a couple inches off the bottom with water in, like you put cut flowers in, in water. And it stays fresh looking for about two weeks. And the stores just love it and it just flies out, out the door. It's not a highly profitable crop. Um, but it's so consistent, and, it's, and, and the stores love it so much that then they open the door to more and more uh, produce. So we've found that that's been the, the best um, marketing tool we have to, to get new customers. 
And that, I, I'm glad you brought that point up because sometimes you do need to grow some crops that aren't as profitable because they lend that diversity and keeps your customer wanting to get those other crops that, that are more profitable for you. So that. But you better make sure that you do have those ones that are more profitable. Absolutely. Huh. Uh, I'll just give you uh, one hint about the basil. I, we waft basil, fresh basil, around the stand all the time. There's something about fresh basil that makes people hungry. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. But um, I guess the way I would describe what we do is we want to bring some, something better to our customers. Um, where we live now, and this is a new experience for us, but where we live now, we have multi-million dollar horse farms around us, and we have Appalachian shacks. In the, same, in the same area, so we have a wide diversity of people to um, minister to. But we try to run our operation, we manage our soil and our operation so that it's always pressed down and overflowing. One of the things that, you go to the market and we scale everything, and so you'll watch your customers watching the scale because they want to see whether or not you're going you're gonna to shortchange them. But we always give them more. And when, we, when you operate that way where you can give more, if your own life is pressed down and overflowing, then you have something to give. And so that's always built tremendous loyalty for us. What we bring to them changes their lives, both the food and, and the fellowship. And so we think that that's where our priority is to make sure that everything we do uh, brings that. That customer service element you don't always see nowadays, so people so appreciate that. Um, I think something that sets our farm apart is um, that we have a, a typically a 24-hour window that we get our produce to our customers in, and that's something that we hear repeatedly that people love because obviously that nutrition value is so much higher in that window. So when you can keep it that super freshness and um, being veganic is another huge thing for our customers because we're finding that there's so many people in the world that are going vegan that when, when you are offering veganic produce, they, they really resonate with that because it's not just an avenous thing. There's so many people um, wanting to pay more attention to their health. And um, like he was saying, that, that principle of always giving a little bit more, uh, we try to have really good customer service and people respect that and creates lifelong customers. I've been listening to everything everybody else has been sharing and, um, and, and it's all good. And so I think the one thing that I want to add is to borrow from Nike, just do it. Um, you know, customers, they want authentic, they want a relationship, uh, they want fresh, high-quality produce, um, and all you need to do is give it to them. And so... Um, I, I'm in an area that is not a prime vegetable producing location. We, there are, uh, there's, there's getting to be more and more small farmers doing mixed organic vegetables or a lot of them not selling organic vegetables. But really, we don't have a lot of competition in the local market. Um, so it's, not, it's really not that, not that hard um, to find customers. But you need to have a product. It needs to be good. And you need to be able to deliver. Um, so you just have to do it. And I noticed on your website um, that you, you definitely combine that communication component, you know, 
keeping abreast with your customers. Um, and yes, and I and I could I could share various things that I've learned regarding um, CSAs, community supported agriculture, um, and what we've found to what we found our customers like the best, as in we have the best retention, the best satisfaction, um, is making sure we maximize one-on-one -on -one personal interaction. Mm -hmm. um, we've tried various things like um, dropping off, um, doing like an office delivery where a, a, an, maybe 10 or 15 people in an office will want vegetables delivered every week to their lunch break room or whatever. But they're in meetings, they're doing this and that. We see one or two of them every once in a while. Most of them we hardly even know what they look like. And we can't keep customers that way. You know, you know if they really want something, if they're going to be going to Walmart anyway, they can buy their produce very conveniently at Walmart or at Whole Foods or at wherever. Um, so it's not, people are not after convenience so much as a connection. Um, so our, we've had our best success with um, doing a farm stand style CSA um, where customers get to pick out. It's basically like showing up to farmer's market except it's a more elite experience in that um, you don't have to bring any money and there's no um, weighing up and whatever of prices. They, they come up and pick out their vegetables, we have time to visit, um, they get some choices as to what they, they, um, they can choose from, and um, we throw in some extras if they have a particular interest in one particular item. Um, and, and I think it's just the being able to stand there and visit for a few minutes, mm -hmm. even if it's only one or two minutes every week. Mm -hmm. If they want to visit longer, we're there for another hour. They can, we, you know, we have had a lot of good conversations and, and developed real friendships, and you know, and so it's that's what we're offering as much as we are offering vegetables. That's great. Okay, any questions so far? Again, from hearing, yes, go ahead. So all of my life, I've been buying my food from stores. But, you know, recently I've become convicted that um, it would be a good idea, if possible, to get back to the way people used to do, growing their own food. Um, you know, there's, you're dealing with, um, you don't know what you're getting in a store. You know, they used to say, if you're going to... Um, eat beef or chicken, uh, go see the cow, see the chicken. Well, I think maybe that would be a good idea for vegetables, too. Um, you know, you got GMOs, you got pesticides, and you don't know, you know, the quality of the food that you're getting. So, but I'm a geek, okay, so I'm, I don't know really anything about farming. And I'm wondering, my question is, um, um, supposing that you wanted to grow most everything that you want to eat, whether it's grain uh, or vegetables or whatever, you know, including uh, space, you know, for uh, equipment, maybe a greenhouse. Um, approximately, if I was going to be looking for a farm, 
approximately how much acreage do you think would be needed in order to have set up a home farm like that? Do you mean a home farm just for your family yeah, or a farm I, that I, you I would know be that living from? I know that if you're going to, if, um, you're going to start providing to the community and having customers, that you'll need something larger. But I'm trying to establish what it would be the minimum amount just for my family. Well, I'm going to tell you, we have a farmer here by the name of Alan Seiler, who how, it's how big is it? Quarter of an acre? A sixth of an acre. And that's a lot of food that he grows. But I'd like to, I mean, and I know our farm is very small, but we grow a lot of food. So someone give us an answer. Go ahead. One thing you might want to consider, uh, if you live very far north in the United States, uh, can you buy some land that has some trees on it? Maybe you can supply your own firewood, supply your own heat. Uh, so as we have recently looked for land, that's been our primary consideration because we live in northern Michigan. So something else to think about. I don't, I don't know exactly what the, the other panel discussions going on, on the, the one on the no buy and no sell era. They, they might have very particular answers to that question. Um, as far as true subsistence farming, I heard you say grains, other things like that. Um, most of the people up here, we grow fruits and vegetables, um, which are more profitable small-scale crops. Um, if you, if you want to get into more subsistence carbohydrate additions, you, you might not be able to live only on a sixth of an acre depending on how many kids you have. Um, but it probably wouldn't take that much. Um, so I don't really, I've, I think that there probably are some books and resources and people with experience who could, who could give you some more firm numbers. Um, and I don't know if anybody has anything to recommend. So that's what I was going to recommend is, um, and I hate to recommend to somebody that's not I wish there was an Adventist I could recommend you to. I'm trying to think of how to say that. Um, John Jevons, Grow Biointensive, is on the uh, California coast in um, Willits. Thank you. Uh, he has several books, and in those books, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he answers that question in great detail. All your grains, the whole spread of things, and uh, ballpark. I want to say it's something around an acre will feed four people, if it was all planned out and mapped right. But John Jevons Grow Biointensive. That's really what he's focused on for a while. I would say if you're prepared to do most of the work yourself, it would be profitable or economical. If you're going to start trying to grow your grains and hand harvest them and pay somebody to do it. It's not going to be worth it. I've been there, tried it. I like to grow my own food in multiple different ways. But to do it all myself has been rather difficult. So that's where you sometimes get into bartering. Somebody else, or that's the whole system we've kind of developed over the years, multiple years. Well, I can't grow this, so I'll, and then pretty soon we're trading dollars instead of goods. You know, I mean, that's kind of the economics that we've kind of worked through. And now we're kind of going back to, well, I want to grow my own stuff because of various reasons you spoke of. So it's a, it's a process of various things depending on the situation. You know, I, 
I couldn't pay my workers to hand harvest my wheat and be economical. I could do it myself, but I didn't have, I mean, I maybe could have time to do it all, but I didn't want to take the time to do it all. So, anyway, just a little bit. Um, we actually grew about 85% of everything we ate on a half acre. Um, that included 55 dwarf fruit trees, grapevines, blueberries, uh, raspberries, strawberries, all of the fruits and vegetables, and even we started to do some with grains. But as it's been set up here, it's a matter of, you know, taking into consideration the work that's involved. It, it, you can, it can be done, and you could probably do it on less than a half acre, too, depending on what priorities you had as far as what food you wanted. But there's more to the question than how much acreage um, it would take. Actually, maybe in 3,000 square feet, you could, you could produce the majority of it, even including some grains, especially if you, you worked like... I actually grow highly intensively, um, like John Jevons um, does, and you can get a lot out of a little bit of space. I grow everything up because I'm 6'5", and I don't like being <laughs> bending over to pick things, but, but you can grow a lot of stuff on a little bit of space if it's well-managed, but you have to take into consideration what the requirements of each of those things are and, and what time you have to give to it. Okay. I'll just make a quick recommendation. I would say three acres or more. <laughs> Why do I say that? I read somewhere, and I can't tell you where, but I could find it if I looked it up on my computer. It said something about trying to secure a few acres. So I think a few is like three. And even with three, uh, you know, you can do a lot with that. There's other things that, you know, we have to think about too, going into what we know is coming very quickly. So keep that in mind. Yes. Okay, um, I'm going to move on to my next question, and that is that, and again, we won't go in a specific order. You can pop up your answers wherever you want. When you think about, and when you, when you started your farm, or right now you're looking forward to next year or whatever it might be, how does marketing play into your planning? In other words, do you just go out there and say, well, I just think I'm going to plant this much corn? Or, do you, or what, what types of things do you do in your thinking at your farm that marketing and planting your crops, how do they work together? I know for me as I'm getting older, <laughs> the labor and the length of the day kind of hits me a little harder. So I, when I look at marketing and what I'm going to grow for another season, I'm looking at less labor-intensive crops, um, like maybe um, something that doesn't take so much time, like little cherry tomatoes or green beans, that kind of thing, bigger things, you know. And, um, you know, down the road there's a lot more regulations, so I try and factor that in as to what's going to a field pack versus a pack shed and different things like that. Well, it's, uh, if you have some experience with your markets, that's helpful because then you can ask the question, um, what did I wish I had more of last year or what did I have a hard time getting rid of last year? Um, so um, I, some people are meticulous record keepers. I am not a meticulous record keeper. But I do keep track of some things like that, and you and and you need to you have to balance um, what your capabilities are 
um, with profitability and what your customer wants. Customers love to buy green beans. They also love to buy tomatoes. I prefer to pick tomatoes to green beans because they're not so small and light, you know. But, uh, but I do pick some green beans because I want to keep my CSA customers happy and also I like to eat them. So, um, so we do grow some green beans, but only as much as we want to pick. Um, so, so I, so a lot of my a lot of my, third of my market is CSA. So I plan my plantings according to what I'll need every week for my CSA um, to satisfy what my customers want. And I found that the majority of what most people want is traditional lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers. Um, they a little bit of you know they like a little bit of interesting things on the top, but they want the stuff they're used to for the regular staples every week. You know, they want that every week. So, and that's the point, is every week. And so, you know, every week that I have tomatoes in season, my customers get tomatoes. Every week that I have lettuce in season, my customers get lettuce. That means that I plant lettuce every week that I can grow lettuce in Oklahoma. Um, and that I try to keep my tomatoes, start them as early as possible and keep them as live as long as possible. Um, because the customers want to buy that every week. I think that um, marketing is definitely uh, something to do a lot of research with. If you don't already have a farm, it's something to put some time in, calling around to places that you want to sell to. If you're doing wholesale, um, stores you want to sell to, brokers you want to sell to, figure out what people are ordering and what kind of prices they'll give you. And also remember that prices vary a lot. So if you call in the winter time, for instance, they're going to give you a price on tomatoes that's going to be radically different than what it is during the summertime when everyone comes in with lots of stuff. And it's easy to get on fad um, items. So like, you know, something can be really popular right now. So you decide to go in and plant it. But pay attention to who's nearby growing it as well because chances are, because it's a fad, a lot of people are putting that in and all of a sudden when you think you're getting this price because it's a hot item this year and then the next year you go to plant it, by that time other people have come along and um, you're kind of too late, so to speak. You're coming in on the slump and, and that, that price and market demand is, it changes a lot. So it really depends, um, that question depends a lot on, on what size of farm you have, um, and all of that. We have our CSA type program. We have close to um, 600 or 700. So about six, six or 700 boxes that we send out every week. So for us, it's big to have a lot of variety, like Luke was saying. And um, for our wholesale side of things, we have to really plan on having a variety for them as well and not putting all of our eggs in one basket, if I can use that term, because we found that repeatedly they'll tell us they want something, and then we come out with that something, and oh, we already got it from another source, so now they don't need it, and now you have all this product on your hand that you can't um, sell at the prices you need. So it's really balancing that, paying attention to what's around you, um, and really focusing on getting that data um, early on if you don't have already some st statistics. Um, one, of, one of our priorities is we want to keep the business in our family. And so we need to be able to surround whatever our family can do. Because when you start getting into the uh, hiring employees and everything, if anybody's done that, you, you can figure out pretty fast what kind of headaches that can become in a hurry and what kind of legalities and everything. 
But the truth is that local food is becoming more and more popular. I, I, we live in an area now that's got a lot of poor people. And we need to figure out how to, 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 to bring clean, nutritious food to these people who have a limited budget and everything. Um, the truth is, like some people have said here, that, that there are some things that everybody wants. But because local food is becoming more popular, there's more and more people getting into the game, if you want to call it that. And so there's a lot more competition. And, and if you're in an area where something grows really easy, like tomatoes, um, they go really cheap. And so we, the, the, the way that we strategize, we, don't, we have a lot of confidence that what we, set, what we grow will sell. And so we don't expend a huge amount of effort on figuring out what the markets are and everything. We, we figure out what the demographics are. You know, if we're in Lexington doing something, well, the people there spend a lot more money on things. And they, they want exotic things. But if we're near where we live, um, tomatoes, potatoes, <laughs> peppers, the, you know, the staple things that every, everybody eats. But the key to the marketing is to making sure that what you have is better than what anybody else has. Because the markets are going to become more and more saturated with people that are trying to do the same thing. And if you, even if you are growing a, a crop that everybody wants, uh, we, we just really try to make sure that it's... Um, because we usually are higher than everybody else in the marketplace with our price. But we usually sell out, and other people take stuff home of the same types of things. So, but the, the way I put it is this. When we, when we sell a person a tomato, if it's a $2, now in, in Kentucky, you can get tomatoes for 79 cents a pound. <laughs> but if we, can sell, we sell it for $2 a pound, we're giving them a $2 tomato. They're getting two dollars worth of nutrition and eating experience in the tomato that they're getting, as opposed to the seventy-nine cent tomato that they can buy. And you have to have that kind of confidence in what you're, you're taking to the marketplace. Um, otherwise, you're you're going to have to try to figure out how to compete with everybody else that's in the marketplace and uh, and all of the the product that's available. Our operation is probably a little unique in that. We have standing orders with our customers, and um, we've trained them. Our crops take two to four weeks to grow. So we've trained our customers that if they want to make an adjustment to their order, they need to give us two weeks' notice. So um, it makes it real easy to know how much to grow. <laughs> I found that um, presentation makes a big difference packaging. Uh, for example, tomatoes are one of the big crops that we have and I hate throwing away good tomatoes but a lot of times if they're not big enough for a um, slicer which is uh, supposed to be minimum of two and a half inches, um, we would have oodles of those left over and could hardly give them away. So Jonathan uh, had suggested, let's put them in a clamshell. So we put them in a one-pound clamshell and um, started selling them, and we were selling out of them. And it added about $3,000 extra revenue just for putting them in a 15-cent clamshell, and we actually got more per pound for them than we were getting for the slices. So presentation is everything. For some reason, people don't want to pick up little tomatoes and put them in their own bag, but if you put them in a one-pound thing already, that's easy to pick it up and put it in the... <laughs> so um, that, that really helps. 
And what was the other thing? Uh, we found our, our uh, volume went up when we started doing extra deliveries. We started out once a week, then we went to twice a week. And as soon as we went to twice a week deliveries, it doubled our, our volume straight away. Because what happened was the uh, stores would, if they ran out before our next delivery, they'd then call the distributor and buy from a distributor. Then when we went for the next order, uh, oh, we've still got some from distributors, so it would actually hurt us. But as soon as we became regular enough that they could keep our product on the shelf, then the volume went up. Uh, actually, we've gone to four deliveries a week now, but that's two different routes that we go to, through. So, um, But you're giving your customers, if it's two different routes, both, both routes are getting it twice a week so they can get it fresh. Right. So you're paying attention to your customers' needs. Yes, and um, we... We have a list of priority as far as customers. We have 14 stores that we supply, and the best ones that pay the highest price, they get the first priority and, and, and down. And we try to train our customers too. We try to get them to come and chase us. They like our product so well that if they miss out, sometimes they get upset about it. So I tell them, well, you call us at this time, and if you call us at this time or email me, then you'll get in ahead of everyone else. So it's better if they're chasing you than you chasing them. That's an important point. When you're doing something better, when you're actually offering something better to people, they start, we would have customers, and this is what we want, really. We want to bring people into the environment where we can give them even more than just physical nourishment. Uh, we would have customers, we would run out at the market, and so customers who would come late would be disappointed. And so we started to have a customer showing up out at the farm. And, and we eventually got, so we had several hundred customers coming to us so that they could make sure. My wife started baking bread, just a simple whole wheat bread from fresh ground flour. And we got up to 150 loaves a week, and we were maxed out at that. The facilities we had, we couldn't do any more than that. Um, and we started selling out of the bread. And one morning, my wife was, uh, I talked to the customers, and so we told them a little bit about you know, how she bakes it and when it's ready and all that kind of stuff. Well, one morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, a customer knocked at the door and wanted to get their bread. <laughs> so it's all, it's really the marketing, everybody else is doing the marketing too. So you've got to differentiate yourself in a way that, that people are going to want to do that. They're going to, you're really, you're training them, if this, I guess you want to put it that way, it sounds a little sneaky, but, um, but that's, you know, they want that. You want them to be in a place where they want what you're offering to them. And, and they'll start coming after you if they can't get it where, where I, had, I had customers that would travel two hours each way, twice a week, to get, to get our produce. And so if you're offering them something better, that's what will ultimately wind up happening. I 100% agree with you um, that, that it, the key is to something better. And, but along with that key, which is what everybody's been saying, is we as farmers need to pay attention keep our ears to the ground, keep our, our antennas up in every way to know what it is that's actually going to sell in my area. There might be, um, I might be able to sell way more purple kale in Kentucky than what I could sell it in New York or something. So we've got to be out there listening, keeping, keeping our, our feelers out to know what it is that people want. And um, and again, like, like several people mentioned green beans, so I'll just mention it again too. 
hugely high labor crop, but I can tell you having some of those little high labor ones that your profit margins aren't as good on is what really can keep the people coming back to you because they just love those so much. I can post on our web store on a Sunday afternoon, I can put up late in the day, they have to have their orders in by midnight, and late in the day I'll just make 50 packages of green beans available. And they're gone like that. I, I have this theory that people are just monitoring our website to see when the green beans are going to get back on the store because we only put them on as we have them. Um, so you've got to, ha it's kind of that balancing act. Does anybody else have anything to mention about how, how planning what you grow has to play into your marketing? Does anybody else have anything else up here? Okay, then I'm going to take a question that's a little bit unrelated. Um, someone says, what role do you see specialty ethnic vegetables having in diversifying your markets and also customer base? Um, I think we've kind of sort of answered that, but are any of you specifically growing any extremely specialty ethnic things that you think have really helped your market? I'm not growing anything that really has helped my market because we're such a young farm, but Fresno is really ethnically diverse. We have a lot of Asians, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of African Americans. They all eat very differently. Black folk love okra, and a lot of white folk don't, and I do too, yeah. Um, the Asians like different types of eggplant. They like different types of this and that, and the Hispanics, lots of chilies, different types of chilies than Caucasians use, where with lots of bell peppers, they like more chilies. So, you know, for us, we're not to that point yet because we're so new, but it'd be very easy to rationalize that it would really expand your market into other ethnicities. I was going to say, even the people who aren't necessarily of that ethnicity, like we grow in Arizona isn't, I don't think that would be like the prime okra area, really. But whenever we have it available, people just snatch it up. But again, we don't grow like this huge amount of it. We grow just a very small amount because people, I think, we're, everybody wants to have adventures and people want adventures in their food. So having just enough of those little specialty things gives people that opportunity. Anybody else have? Yeah. I would say that um, it's also just paying attention to who your demographic is that you, that's buying from you, not even necessarily. Um, and if you have a very diverse, if, if you're doing a CSA, if you have a very diverse CSA, then, then you can get away with doing a lot of different things. But if your CSA is very demographically specific, then pay attention to if that demographic would like other things. Now, with our CSA, um, most of our members are a little higher influential members. So they tend to like, we've noticed, more unique things because they, they're used to going to expensive and unique restaurants that serve unique food, so they like a lot of unique stuff. But a lot of CSAs, I think, are out there, especially if, if your dollar value is lower as far as your products that you're selling. Um, people are probably used to just more standard stuff. If it's more like backwoods, country type of a situation, they might not be into um, more unique things. That's, you just have to pay attention to what your clients like, I think. And if you can get into a wholesale side of things, there is definitely a market for unique things out there if you can grow it. Um, a little thing I want to highlight, um, what Luke, you said earlier, you said that people love these basic things, like your, your good head of romaine lettuce, that tomato, that cucumber. And I, and I think 
in your, and now we've been emphasizing the ethnic and the special things, but don't forget you need that rock-solid foundation of those, those basic, everyday, salad-type common items that I can guarantee when you have those, those people want them every single week, and then we've got to have the, the extra specialty things with it. Did you, were you adding something to that? Okay. Um, and Amy had made a comment that I do want to also um, uh, highlight as well, and that is that when you're out there talking, say you're wanting to do wholesale, and there's three little grocery stores in your area, and so Amy said call them up. That's a good idea, but also walk into that grocery store ahead of time and talk to them. You know, what is it that you're looking for? How much could you use of this? And Amy made the comment that pay attention. If you're talking to them in the winter, then pay attention that what they're telling you in the winter is sure as anything probably not going to be accurate for the summer. And unfortunately, in the winter, they're going to promise you the moon, and they're going to say, oh, I use this much and I pay this much. But when it comes summertime, they're likely not going to pay you as much as they promised you in the wintertime. And, uh, I mean, unless you get, like, uh, and you can sometimes get actual contracts. But if it's just sort of this gentleman's thing, um, pay attention really to that. Because um, produce managers, I always say, and I don't know if anybody else has had this experience, um, they have a pretty short attention span and a pretty short memory. And, and where it's at right now, if they can't get kohlrabi right now, then they're just sure that they could use pallets and pallets of it next week or, or next summer or whenever it is. So, so try and uh, gauge things and pay attention from that. Um, our time is running along here. Any of you here... If you are, do you have anything that you're thinking of that you think might be a great innovation in marketing and in making your farm move to the next step that maybe you haven't done yet, but it's something you're kind of thinking of that you think you'd like to share with people? It's just a dream, but I want to sell lemons. (laughs) In Washington? 11 miles from Canada, yeah. Um, That's a dream. (laughs) Yeah, it is a dream. Partially because we know we can't buy and sell, and and I like to eat, and you know there's going to come time, and we use lemon juice for all our salad dressing, and so I thought I'd like to grow some lemons, and I learned some amazing things about lemons that they can sit on a tree for over a year, and so if I could get them growing, and then somehow just keep them wintered over, and then and I'll also get top prices for them. So we started building an in-the-ground greenhouse that is it's not done. It's just got a big hole in the ground. I've got too many other projects right now. But if it works, it's a little experiment, then I'm probably going to do some 200-foot-long in-the-ground greenhouses. And uh, what kind of gave me the idea was learning about some guy in the middle of California that has an in-the-ground orchard or underground orchard. Have you heard about that? Fresno. Yeah, you should know about that. Uh, anyway, so the reason is because as a small farmer, we have this situation that whatever crop is the in crop in season we have two big competitors Walmart and Super One and they get into a price war and all the local farmers get hit with the shots across the bow that they're shooting at each other with these low prices so you have to sell things a little earlier or a little after to get your dollar fifty tomatoes otherwise you're going to be who wants your tomatoes when everybody else is selling them for 79 cents and so for us, figuring out how to grow things a little earlier, a little bit later, 
things that normally aren't grown in our area, that makes a big difference for us. Something we, that I would kick around a little more off and on is if we could do something with a lot of our produce that we're, we're not marketing fresh. Um, but it involves a little more the steps we haven't wanted to take yet. Say putting something in a jar or in a package, um, adding that. We have customers who would like to have us label some of our things in a different way and put it in their stores. That would be an avenue we could market things. We're not marketing now. We're just dumping them in the field because they have a crack or a soft spot or something, say if it's tomatoes or that kind of thing. Uh, the other is apricots. We have a real nice apricot variety that our customers want fresh, and we're working for that toward that, but uh, I would be more apt to put it in as a in a jar because it doesn't involve the new food regulation, <laughs> which is coming down on our shoulders, and we are not looking forward to that. So that's something we're, I'm contemplating whether, how that's going to impact our business. And you wouldn't quit doing what you're already doing, this would just be added. Well, some of our orchard crops are not involved in that, like our, our prunes, they're all, uh, you know, they're dried at 170 and, and steamed, steamed at 210, and, and walnuts, you know, they're different type of way of, you know, all the fresh stuff is kind of what I'm wondering what the impact will be. But that's some of my consideration, doing something besides fresh. Hmm. Great idea. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I hadn't thought about that until you asked the question, but um, one of the ways as a family you can do more is if you can spread your labor out over, over more days. Anybody here that goes to the market knows what a crunch it is to try to get everything ready to go to the market and, and take it there. And what if you bring stuff back that you didn't sell? Um, and we grow, we're, we're going to be growing a lot of, I did in Colorado, but we're going to be growing a lot of small fruits. And if you've been to the marketplace, there's, there's a lot of people selling prepared foods there, and so there'll be p people selling all kinds of junk food. But one of the ideas that we had, and we're actually going to put a processing um, kitchen in so we can do this in freezers and everything, is to take those berries, spread out the labor, so because berries, picking berries is labor-intensive, spread it out over several days rather than a couple days, and... Um, process it and freeze it and then take it to the marketplace and sell them a frozen fruit sorbet or something like that where you can you can give them a healthy snack that you can add value to and it spreads your labor out so you don't have to um to uh try to crunch it all into a, a small amount of space a couple of days a week um so we're we're going to do that we've done salsa in the past where we process product in, into salsa and then if you can take it and you can spread it out the marketing season out so if it's a perishable product you don't have to just sell it right now when it's when it's um but you know one of the one of the challenges with that is the legalities that you have to go through to get to get everything just so so that you're allowed to do that but especially that's one of the, for canning now did you have in colorado did you have to have it in a certified kitchen or were you just doing we, it yeah at we had to even baking the bread and everything we had to have we had to meet certain requirements as far mm -hmm. as access and hygiene and all of those things, yeah. and it's gotten even more intense since then. But yeah. I think it's doable, um, given the fact that we can take their high-value crops and we can take them and spread them out and sell them in, in value-added ways that, um, mm -hmm. is, again, you're, people are coming and they're buying. Actually, people in a lot of markets, they spend more money on prepared food than they do on the fresh food, and a lot of it's junk. And so if we can take something there that's healthy for them and, 
and offer it. And if it's good, then we, we actually do it with a frozen pear, and, and we mix the frozen fruit with it, and, it, and it's fantastic. You can do it with banana, too, but mm. banana has a pretty intense flavor to it itself. The, banana, the pear doesn't have as, as intense a flavor. But that's what we're hoping to do is actually get that all up and going so we can kind of spread everything out a little bit. Excellent. And a caution, anytime you're going to get into prepared food, check your state's requirements for that. We, we have a sprouted organic bakery at our farm, and so you had mentioned the bread. And um, our bakery items just continue to soar in popularity along with, and it's a great compliment. I mean, who doesn't want a tomato and a tomato sandwich? So you give them the bread and the, and the tomato or whatever. Um, but in Arizona, and I have a feeling it might be similar in other states, your requirements for baked goods um, to be legal are, are at this level, and your requirements for processed foods are at this level. So, and especially when you get in, and then you've got when you can something, that's even a higher, uh, a higher food safety requirement. So watch out for those things. But So we, at this point, when we make our salsa from our tomatoes, we have another facility actually make it for us because um, we haven't yet gone to the extra legal paperwork to get certified for that. But those processed foods are extremely... Um, beneficial and um, uh, people appreciate them and, and they have a whole uh, another profitability d- dimension that adds to it. Did you have something, John? Yeah, I, I would just add to that that, I, I mean, it's so true with the strawberries, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, honey, help me out, but I mean for a flat of strawberries in if we take them to Nashville, we get $36 a flat, and I think for that, yeah, if we sell them as individual pints, it's $48, um, but we can, we can take those same strawberries and process them into jam and double that, you know, so, so on one side you're saying, well, why don't we just make all jam, but that's a lot of work, and, and we... You know, we prefer to sell them fresh because they're healthier, but our jam is much lower sugar than, than what they're going to buy in the store. So those, those value-added things are so great because, you know, if we get too much rain on our berries, it really cuts down on the flavor, but they're fine for jam. So if we get, you know, two or three days of rain, we just take those berries and process them. But again, you couldn't make build your and, whole business around the jam but by having it as a part of all these other things, it's just that icing on the cake. Right, right. And, and for things like jam and baked goods, like you say, the, the requirements are much lower. And in our state, you don't even have to have a certified kitchen. You wow. can, they have what they call a domestic kitchen, you know, for those things. Now, if you're getting into the, I forget what it is, you know, the... the stuff that has to be pressure canned that like your acidic things yeah that has higher requirements but the other thing i would say and it kind of goes along with this is just add-ons like if you have a csa you know you can have a an egg add-on or kirsten has always wanted to do a a bouquet add-on you know this is the price for the csa but for an additional $10, you get a seasonal bouquet every week. People love flowers. Yes. I get surprised how many people just buy little marigolds from us. And the stems are only like like that. You know, they're just short little stems. But people want 
little flower things. And, and on ours is different because they, they choose. It's not like us just adding it. And so it, it just fascinates me how, I mean, flowers feed our souls. And obviously they do for other people too. Anybody else have something cutting edge that you're thinking about? Oh, Amy. I, I don't know if this, because this has all been about produce, but I think it's important as farmers to, to integrate technology into our marketing strategies as well. And um, with that, like we found, now we're a larger scale farm, so this might not work for really small scale farms, but there's other ways you can do similar things to this. We've actually used Groupons for our farm, and people have a lot of mixed responses as far as like when you talk to restaurants, how Groupons do for them and stuff. I've heard a lot of negative feedback from, from other places, but for us, Groupons were a beneficial thing for us. It's a little bit of an investment at first because you're giving your product away cheaper, but a marketing long-term, we got more results from it than, than other avenues where typically like um, a good marketing campaign, say by radio or um, uh, email, newspaper, those kinds of TV. I'll, when you, We talked to some different ad um, companies, and they said that if you get a 1% to 3% um, retaining of customers from your marketing, that's really good. Uh, f- f- per marketing dollar, one to three percent um, sell through retention. Retention, yeah. yeah. Where for us, Groupon, I think we had you probably ten to twenty percent. Yeah. It depended yeah. on. It, we did two different campaigns. You can choose how many Groupons you want to do and that that kind of th- thing. But for us, that was a good retention rate when we did, um, like say a thousand Groupons when you get a hundred extra customers that are buying weekly from you. That's a decent amount of growth. Um, when you're wanting to get to a larger size. But um, something to think about with Groupon, it, just if you ever thought of doing it, don't list, like, if, if you call them up, them, what they offer you, bargain with them because they're going to they're gonna lowball you. So you've got to bargain with them so that you get a better, a better deal out of it. And you have to manage Groupon to make it work. But it, but it is a, a Things like thing. that, though. Like, there's a yeah. lot of different avenues that you can think about and, and get in. And I really liked um, what Darren was saying earlier about packaging things in different containers, different styles of things that, that you might be throwing away. There's typically a way to somehow make it so that you can take what you consider your, your bad stuff. And um, we did microgreens. And instead of what for our microgreens, when they start to get overgrown, we, typically we had about what our customers would, would want. But then sometimes they would want something slightly, you know, their orders would change a little bit. So when our microgreens got too big, we started calling that a power salad. And we just would harvest all the leftovers and make a mix out of it and, and sell that as a power salad. And it would change week to week slightly of what's in it. And our customers absolutely loved it. And so now we actually plant microgreens that we make into a power salad because of that. So really paying attention to coming up with more products and um, using everything that you can. And um, we, when we were coming to the end of one kale crop one time, um, and, and the new stuff was coming on, but Timothy, one of our interns, he said, well, why don't we just, because this was in the wintertime, he said, why don't we just sell the, the little tops and the little nubs that are coming out? Let's just sell them as kale buds. And so that became a whole nother product for us. We would have these, you know, how when your, your kale is like this tall at the end and all the leaves are all chopped off. And then it just, it literally just starts putting out all these new little buds. So kale buds became a new product. So that's the benefit of when you're going more direct. You can um, start utilizing some of these things that, that you thought weren't going to work out. I saw a question. Um, yes. 
The question was, what is a Groupon? So it's, it stands for Group Coupon, I think. Um, it, you can Google it. It's actually a great way to get a lot of good deals if you're into deals. Um, it's a way for customers to, or businesses to advertise their, their business, and you can buy it at a reduced rate. So they kind of split that with the customer. Um, and because Groupon has, it's become such a large thing, especially if you're in a larger town, is really where it needs to be. I don't think they do small small areas. So if, if it's somewhere where you're selling into a larger population, um, that's where it would work. So they have a list of people and people choose like what kinds of things interest them. And then every week they're sending emails to people. And so if you were to advertise your business, basically they would send an email to their email list of people that are interested in food or interested in organic or interested in whatever it might be. They send an email advertising an offer from your business. And then people can go onto their site and say, buy a, um, up for us, it was like buy a farm box at half price or at a third of a price or I mean at two thirds of price. So then they buy that that one time and then you like hopefully can get them as a customer because they like it so much. That's, that's a goal and they can only buy it one time. They have different regulations like that in place. Are there any other questions before I give? Oh yes, over there. You mentioned something about flowers earlier, and I notice all of your flowers up here and the, the uh, ornamental gourds and pumpkins and stuff. Do any of you sell ornamental as a yes a crop? And does it you know you have a pumpkin patch and anything like that? You know, well, I'll just speak for us. Um, I wouldn't build my whole farm around it, but. Um, you know, at that time of year when you have your your interesting-looking, cute little pumpkins and gourds and stuff, they ab- people absolutely order them. And But again, in our program, you know, they're choosing what they want, and so along with their tomatoes and their cucumbers and their kale and their bok choy and all the other things that they're ordering, then we would just have it on our web store. Um, we would have, you know, whether they were small ones or medium ones and whether you were just buying one or whether you were buying three or four as a, you know, a little group. And they, they sold very well. Awesome. Very well. I wrote down some questions. I hope you all yeah. <laughs> you don't mind. Did Barter anybody else system. here have it, an answer for that? Oh, go ahead. Another oh, question. Oh, I'm sorry. It, barter system. Does any, do you guys do any kind of bartering between farms? You know? Of, we do a your... little bit of that. Does anybody else do any of that? No? Uh, in farmer's market, I do. Ah. That's... And how oh. easy or hard is it to become organic? Um, it's on the bartering question. <laughs> um, I do that regularly at farmer's market. Um, at the end of market, usually you'll have something left over. And there'll be other growers that specialize in other things that have other things left over. So I'll often trade tomatoes for blackberries or, you know, other things, things like that. Awesome. Thanks. And speaking of bartering, we, we barter our CSA box for uh, music lessons for our kids. We've done that for years. Um, we, barter, we bartered with uh, a friend who refinished our wood floor for a season's worth of CSA. Um, I don't know. We do quite a few barters, actually. So... 
We've yeah. even bartered for a magazine space for a magazine ad. And the, it was a small company, and they were happy to get, uh, to get produce in exchange for us having an, an advertisement with them. I've actually bartered. I get my hair done free for produce, um, <laughs> vet bills for produce. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, we actually get all of our, well, we don't now because we're moved, but when we were in Colorado, all of our dental work was um, cleanings and all of those things were, we always got the better end of the deal, too, and he didn't seem to care. It's amazing what good tasting food um, can do. One more question before I go to my final. Oh, what was the other question? Oh, I, well, I was just going to oh, ask how hard, it, how hard, easy is it to become organic? And do any of you ever, any kind of government programs or help or something like that? Who had the question? I thought somebody had. Does anybody want to answer the organic question? Or? I thought I saw a hand up. Oh. Um, the, the procedure is not excessively hard. I think different um, Regu um, different certifying organizations will be different to work with, but the basic USDA requirements are, um, I think they're accessible. Um, and as far as government, grant, other sorts of programs, I've, per I've participated in the NRCS High Tunnel Grant Program. Um, and there's some regulations on you, how you can use them for, up for the first three years. But they're reasonable in what I was planning to use them for anyway. And I don't mind taking grant money back with the taxes that I pay in. So, I mean, it seems reasonable enough. There's a couple of responses. Organic, I'm going to make this parallel. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who tell you how to live your life on the basis of what you shouldn't do. And you remember that organic is, in many ways, similar to that. It's largely a list of exclusions of what you cannot do. It does not tell you how to have a good fertility program or many other things that would be substantial improvements upon organic. But it also depends on your land use history. We got really lucky that the school hadn't done anything with the land that they shouldn't have done. Otherwise, you have to go through that three-year period. And then I was going to say something else here, and I forgot what it was. What was the other thing you talked about? Uh, grants. Oh, grants. Yeah, I'll, last night I mentioned much of the temple rebuilding work was done by funding from Persia. And I know Adventists typically shy away from the interaction of church and state. And I don't know that that's really a biblical idea. There's lots of government programs especially when you talk about ministering to the poor. There's the food stamps or the EBT thing now um, that they're calling it, or SNAP. Um, That's been great for our farmer's market. Yeah, in Fresno, we're really thinking about a lot of low-income families. Uh, low-income people need organic and local and high-quality food just as much as wealthy individuals do. But the challenge for the farm is how do you do that and still make your, your budget balance at the end of every month. So there are a lot of good programs out there that I think you can look into um, SNAP has some conditions like you actually have to swipe a card at this point so they have to pick it up physically so like for our CSA and drop points it doesn't work uh, or if you're doing home delivery it doesn't work uh, but it works great if people I don't know if it works for Square or not yeah because it's actual actual machine dedicated to they have their own card yeah 
That is correct. Um, there are some stipulations on it. Originally, we were told that you could only do it if you were at a certified farmer's market. I don't know if it varies from state to state, but then we were recently told that uh, there is government funding for putting a um, the SNAP card reader on the farm itself and that they would pay for that. So, And I don't know if that's California, but others. They do it in Tennessee, too? They also have a government, um, most states have uh, a reimbursement program for your organic certification costs each year, and it's up to $750, I believe. And depending upon the size of your farm, that can be a very large chunk of, um, of the certification costs. Um, I want to give uh, all of you one final question. I think we can start at this side and go down. This time we'll go in order. And that is... Um, just for you to share with the people, is your farm your sole source of income for your family? And if so, are you supporting a family of two or a family of four or whatever it is from your farm? So is your farm your sole source of income, number one? And number two, what would be your word of advice to somebody out here who hasn't started a farm yet? And what would be your kind of little whatever type of advice or encouragement that you would like to give them? Uh, yes, our farm um, is our source of income. How many family members do we have? Well, <laughs> what it used to be. What yeah, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we've had three girls and uh, put them through private schools and college and all that. And that's been kind of, we, I wouldn't say it's totally, I mean, we, we are farm related. My brother and I have run a harvest business for 30 years as well. And um, that's been partly harvesting our own crops and harvesting for other farmers. And so that's, it's farm related, all the stuff we do. Um, and then um, what we, um, what I would offer as a snapshot of advice is that kind of what you're asking for? Um, well, I guess I would, th I think, um, decide what you want to do and make a plan to do it. Um. And follow that plan. Yeah. <laughs> so I think also besides... Um, our own family that we've raised, we also support employees. We're big enough that we have to have some employees, and so we've been able to support quite a few employees also. I don't know that my answer to the first question is relevant because uh, we are a church-funded school. I have to be paid, and my employees have to be paid based on church wage policies, and we get retirement and the benefits package. And that's irrespective of what the actual farm income is at this point. So I think everybody else's answer is much better than mine. So people work on your farm? there are four of us that work on the farm, including, you. including myself, yeah, and some volunteers. Um, regarding the second question, my advice to you is to be flexible. The things I've thought about a lot in regard to farming in American society is the desire to create a recipe that's applicable to anybody, anywhere, at any time. It's the... 
it's the American mentality to put it in a box and ship it out. Um, farming by nature, and I believe by design, is inherently flexible and circumstantial. Uh, different varieties of plants perform differently in different climates. There are different climates. There's different soil types. They drain differently of different mineral qualities. There's different insect pressures. And I think what you've heard here this afternoon is a wide variety of responses to any number of questions. And it's easy to get narrowed in on one way of thinking or one method or one recipe. And so to be with nature is to be very flexible. And I think the beauty of this in an object lesson is that every person's heart is different. And our typical approach to evangelism has been to follow a small number of methods and try to apply that to a wide variety of people. And if you do that, you get a very narrow uh, range of responses. And what God's trying to teach us is that the human hearts are all different. Our circumstances are all different. And it takes a different approach. I mean, if you think of all the stories just here on this, how God reached us up here on this stage and how, how God did different things to reach each one of you in the congregation, um, it's not only a, a practical, I think, response for farming, but also very, um, very insightful as an evangelistic method. Can't do the same thing in every place the same way at the same time. Um, my advice to you would be, to think about what your your goals for, um, I guess, your family, for your life and your family are um, first, and then um, <clears throat> your ministry as a family or as a person if you're single, um, and then have your business serve that purpose instead of being a slave to your business. Um, I Farming is my primary income. Um, I have two young children and a wife, and um, we live easily on the income that we that we make. But we live a fairly simple life. Um, you know, I can. I mean, I we have nobody up here has shared how much um, they make or don't make as farmers, which is fine. I'm I'm comfortable sharing of kind of what I make because it's not excessively high or excessively low. I usually net around thirty thousand a year um, on a four-month marketing season, um, and I have free time every year um, that I'm able to volunteer in um, mission work um, with a school in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I have a seasonal, short-term business that's quite profitable for several months out of the year, um, and it gives me flexibility during my off-season. So I guess think what are your goals? You know, you, I could have a lower-paced, more relaxed life if I spread my work out more year-round. Um, but and I'm working on perfecting the system, um, so my day-to-day -day existence is um, is more fulfilling and um, less draining, um, and it's getting better. Uh, the farm is not my primary, well, it is my primary source of income, but I do have other source of income. Um, but my advice, if you're starting out into a farming, the first few years are going to be really rough to make it. And I think having a supplemental source of income is really beneficial. Um, what that is is going to be different for every person, your background, your skill, your experience. But... Um, 
a lot of farmers that have um, that are doing it and are successful. Some they've all had a leg up somehow. Um, there's very few that have started from nothing and own their land and and have everything without having parents or some other you know help to get them onto their farm. So that would be my advice. And as far as it's just my wife and I, we don't have a family to support. Um, we're, as I've said, we're starting all over again. We have to build everything up again uh, after 20 years in another place. So at this point, the farm is not supporting us. In the past, it has. Um, I have eight children, including my wife, that we need to support. We've, um, we've adopted four kids, plus we have four biological kids. And the, the advice that I would give is, one, if you're going to grow, then you need to, have, you need to invest in what's going to grow, what's going to be causing that to grow, and that's your soil. Your soil is your capital. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody because you might be producing things in a different way than growing in the soil. But that's your capital, and so you need to invest in that because a lot of other things that you would wind up spending your money on and your time and energy, you won't have to do if you properly do that investment. And the other thing that I would say is um, scale it to a level that you can manage. There's nothing worse than and taking on something bigger than you're really prepared to take on, and it becomes a, a burden and a curse to you rather than a blessing. So be sure that you're, you're, you can handle whatever it is that you decide to take on. <laughs> I was thinking of what I was going to say, and I forgot. Anyway, I, I really agreed with uh, Darren's, what Darren mentioned, that... Um, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Start out small. Just to give you an example, I know our first time we made $50 the first year. Somebody came to buy a tractor or something, and I sold them some plants. I thought, hey, maybe I should be a farmer. Next year, <laughs> next year went, well, it was more than that. Okay, I'm making it short. But uh, the next year, at the end of the summer, I went to four farmer's markets. It was really experienced. It was in September. And that year, we had about $1,200 in revenue. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. I only went for a month and $1,200. Then the next year, and I don't remember all the figures, but maybe it went up to 6400 And then the next year after that, twelve, and then eighteen, And, and uh, that's kind of where it's peaked out because we've got a lot of other things we do. But, um, and this year was a lot less. But we had lots of other goals, ministry goals. And so ministry takes precedence over farm for us. We can do that because we have other income. Uh, the most that the farm has ever done has been about half our revenue for, for a year. And um, the other thing I'd say, I don't want to sound like just a one pony show or anything, but strawberries. <laughs> Better do some strawberries. If you're, if you're going to see the older, a lot of the farmers these days are older generation. You can look at the statistics. And as they get older, nothing, you know, against anybody, but you want things a little easier. So you notice a lot of the farmers that, that are older at the markets are selling squash, tomatoes, corn, all things you can pick and, you know, no effort. So if you have to deal with uh, competition, do the things that are harder. Do the strawberries. And uh, easy to sell. I used to be a professional athlete, and when I was really little, you know, some big 
decisions, little decisions or big decisions, can change your whole course of life. And I remember running, and I wasn't good at any sports, but I, I ran, and everybody wanted to run the 100 yards and be the fastest 100-yard person. I realized I'm going to be competing against everybody. But nobody liked to do the long distance. So I thought, well, maybe I should do long distance because I'm only going to have to compete against three or four people. And, um, well, that made a big difference in my life, and uh, I ended up doing that. So even though strawberries may be a little bit harder, they're a good way to start out. Thank you. We have one minute, so you three will have to go really fast. Our, our farm is not our only source of income, but it is an important source of income. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, my wife has been uh, taking care of our mother, my mother. Uh, we had her for 10 years, and um, I would say for about the last half of that, um, uh, she's required a lot of care. So um, it's, it's been very helpful to, to have the farm income. Oh, and my advice... Um, Seek God and his plan for your life and uh, uh, dedicate everything to him and he will guide you in the direction that you need to go. Our farm is our only source of income. We have uh, seven, or we did have, one is now married, um, seven in the family. And my advice would be to make sure this is a calling from the Lord. You know, if, this, if you're looking at this as a way to make an income, there's a whole lot easier ways to make an income. But if this is a calling from the Lord, then when the hard times come, and they will come, you can push through because you know God called you to it. And if you don't have that assurance, you're going to bail out. So our farm is our only source of income, and we have about 25 employees as well. So it's so their source of income as well. Um, I just agree with all the advice that was already given. Since we're out of time, that's all I'll say. And um, I totally agree with all the advice, too. And tagging on to what you said, John, we have seen time over time in our farm that Romans eight twenty eight is truly a rock to lean upon, that all things work together for good. And if you strike out in farming, I can guarantee you are. I'm not going to just say you might, if, especially if you're wanting it to be your livelihood. You will absolutely have days when you say, why did that happen to me? But if you believe that God called you to it, you will absolutely know that every single one of those bad experiences, you will look back on it and you will say, my farm would have never become what it is today if I didn't have that horrible experience that I thought was going to sink us for sure. And I think probably you could all um, testify with that. And so you will have the next two or three days to seek out each one of these farmers and and ask them more questions. And I encourage you to do so if you do have that moment. And at this time, let's ask for God's blessing. Um, And Brad will have prayer for us. Gracious Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the blessings of the time you've given us here together. As brothers and sisters, we pray that you'd continue to help us as we learn your will and your plan for our lives in agriculture and throughout our communities that you'd give us courage, wisdom, and help in your blessings day by day. We thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.